First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Well, good morning, church, on this Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, it really is always a Super Bowl Sunday as we get to come together on the Lord's Day to worship His name and, and to read from His Word. And so if you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Joshua chapter 7. You know, things uh, sure can change in a hurry, can't they? And you can go from being at the highest of highs to being on the, the top of the world, and the next minute uh, you come crashing down to the very bottom. And it can happen so fast. And that's what we're going to see in God's Word today. This series is about how to have a faith that wins. And last week, we read about the people of God winning by faith one of the greatest victories uh, that they ever won. And the walls of Jericho came tumbling down right in front of them. But then you turn the page, one page from Joshua chapter 6 to Joshua chapter 7, and instead of reading about a great victory, we find ourselves reading about a terrible, tragic defeat. And so in the middle of this series about how to have a faith that wins, today we're going to talk about the only way that we as believers can lose. And actually, before we read Joshua 7, we need to read as a reminder a few verses tucked away in chapter 6. Because right before the people of God shouted in faith, right before the walls of the city of Jericho fell down, their leader Joshua reminded the people of God that the city of Jericho had been entirely devoted by the Lord to destruction. And because it had in this particular battle, they were not permitted to take anything for themselves. Look at chapter 6, starting in verse 16. We read, And the seventh time it happened, when the priests blew the trumpets, that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. And so the instructions that the Lord gave his people through Joshua were very clear. Metals like silver and gold and bronze and iron, they were devoted to the Lord. And then other than Rahab and her family, everyone, everything else in the city was to be destroyed. The soldiers were clearly told not to keep any of the things in the city that had been devoted to the Lord. But when you turn the page to chapter 7, however, we find that one of the Israelite soldiers did not listen to those instructions, disobeyed Joshua, more importantly, disobeyed the Lord. And that's why the very first word that we read in chapter 7 is the word, but. The Israelites had won a great victory, but, look at it with me and let's read this tragic story together in Joshua chapter 7. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, 
the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about 3,000 men went up from there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell on the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? Verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned. And they've also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they've even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And they've also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies because they've become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families and the family which the Lord takes shall come by households and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. And then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah and he took the family of the Zerites. He brought the family of the Zerites man by man and Zabdi was taken. Then he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. And there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in the tent with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? 
the Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger, and therefore the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for all of your word, Lord, even the parts of it like this story that are so hard for us to read. And yet, Lord, we need to hear this story today. So, Lord, would you break through all of our defenses, Father? Would you speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit? Father, that we would not hide our sin, but instead repent of it and turn to you and find mercy in your presence. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. What I want us to do today with the time that we have is first just to walk through this story and to just simply hear what the Word of God is saying. And then we'll come back through again and look at a few of the lessons as we close, things that we can apply from this story to our lives. But right out of the gate in verse 1, the storyteller tells us something as the reader that Joshua and uh, the rest of the people of Israel do not find out until about halfway through the story, and that is that a great sin has been committed by someone in the camp of Israel. Again, verse 1 tells us that, but the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. And so we're given this information so that we might be able to make sense of what we're about to read but again, we must remember the rest of the people in this story do not yet have this information. And so in verses 2 and 3, we read about how Joshua is just going about his business. He's fresh off the great victory at Jericho. And uh, next up is the little city of Ai, which we find out in chapter 8 only had about 12,000 residents in the whole town. And so Joshua sent some men to spy out the city. They come back. They say, well, you know, it's just a little dinky city. Uh, they don't have very many people, so don't send the whole army. You know, give, give most of the guys a breather. Just send, you know, a few thousand. And that's what Joshua does. Except for they get it handed to them. And they lose the battle. And their soldiers are put to flight by the fighting men of little Ai. And 36 Israelite soldiers die in the battle. And by the way, this is the only battle you read about in the book of Joshua where the Israelites lose. And it's the only battle where you read about a certain number of Israelite soldiers are reported to have died on the battlefield. And so many people have speculated, you know, why did they lose? And some people, you know, really harp on the fact that, that Joshua didn't pray for direction before the battle. Or if he did, at least it's not recorded. Some people also point out that it, it sure seems like they were overconfident, maybe after the victory at Jericho, and that's why they only sent a few thousand men. And when we turn to chapter 8, they do send the entire army when they eventually win the battle of, 
of AI. And, and, and listen, those points are possible and obviously it would be very easy to, to speak and preach about the sins of prayerlessness and the sins of overconfidence. And yet, those are not the reasons that God gives for why they lost the battle of AI. God tells us why they lost the battle of AI, and he says that they lost because there was sin in the camp, that he was no longer fighting for them and, in fact, was fighting against them. And so it really did not matter, I would argue, if they had sent the entire army to AI, they still would have lost. And perhaps even more soldiers would have died. But as it is, Joshua still had 36 dead soldiers that weren't coming back to their families. And he doesn't know why. God had told him, Joshua, I'm going to be with you always. No one will be able to stand toe-to-toe with you all the days of your life. And he doesn't understand it. He's baffled by it. So he falls down and tears his clothes, puts dust on his head, begins to cry out in prayer to the Lord. And many people have, have critiqued Joshua for the words of his prayer. And certainly we can pick this prayer apart and find fault with it. But I would caution us against that because Again, Joshua does not know what we know. And so he truly is baffled. And and yes, he doesn't use all of the right words in this prayer, but I, I would say at least he does pray. And you know, sometimes when we're broken and we're baffled by the things that are going on in our lives, we're not gonna get all the words right when we pray either. But God still wants us to pray. He wants us to bring it before him. That's what Joshua does. Now in verse 10, God does tell Joshua to to get up, to stop lying on the ground. He he does tell him that he had just about everything wrong in his diagnosis of why they lost the battle. And starting in verse 11, God tells him why they really lost. And, And look at it again with me. It says, Israel has sinned. That's why you've lost, Joshua. They've also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they've also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their back before their enemies, because they've become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Uh, One person said, and I completely agree, you know, these are some pretty chilling words from the Lord to his commander, Joshua. And he's telling Joshua, because someone in your camp, someone in your army has taken things that are accursed, they've taken things that were devoted to the Lord, now because of that, the entire army, the entire nation of Israel has become accursed. Now all of you are devoted to destruction. And not only am I not gonna guarantee your victory anymore, I'm gonna guarantee your defeat until you deal with this sin that is in your camp. Joshua then tells the people in verses 14 and 15 that the next day in the morning, they would all come and stand before the Lord. And the Lord would choose one of the 12 tribes, presumably by casting lots. And after one tribe was selected, he would bring them by extended family, and then he'd bring them by households, and then he'd bring them man by man until the lot fell on the one man who had done this thing. And the Lord said, when that one man was found who had done it, he and all that he had would be destroyed. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking after hearing Joshua say that, I cannot imagine that Achan slept very well that night. Because he knew that he was the one who did it, and yet he did not come forward and confess that or admit that until the next day when the lot finally fell 
on him. And Joshua walks over to him and looks him in the eye and said, Achan, my son, give glory to God. Don't hide it anymore. Tell what you have done. And though Achan doesn't appear to show any signs of true remorse or repentance, he does at least acknowledge and admit his sin. And in verse 21, he tells Joshua how it happened. That on the day of the battle of Jericho, as he was running up with the other soldiers, climbing over the rubble of the broken down walls and going into the city, a a Babylonian garment, an ornate, fancy uh, clothing, piece of clothing caught his eye and he he wanted it, he took it, he took gold, he took silver, he wrapped it all up, bundled it up, brought it back to his camp, and hid it in a hole in the ground in the middle of his tent. In verse 22, messengers run to his tent, they find it just the way that Achan said, and then they come back and they lay those items, the text says, out before Joshua, out before the people of Israel, and out before the Lord. You can picture the gold, the silver, the Babylonian garment all laying there for everyone to see. For one, it was to verify Achan's confession, but secondly and more importantly, it was returning those items to the Lord because they were devoted to the Lord and they belonged to him and not to Achan. And then in obedience to God's command, they took Achan and all that he had, the stuff he stole, his tent and his family who I believe along with many others may have been very well aware and perhaps even complicit in his sin. After all, he hid his sin right in the middle of their family tent. And they stoned him and they burned them. They covered them with a huge pile of rocks, a memorial to Achan's sin and the Lord's judgment upon it. And in the last verse of this chapter, it says that when they had done that, when they had removed the one who had done this wicked thing, the fierceness of the Lord's anger was removed from his people. And as we will see next week and in the weeks to come, his hand of favor, his hand of blessing returned to his people and they began to experience once again a faith that wins. But today, this story that is before us is not so much about a faith that wins. Again, it's about the only way that we as the people of God can lose. And we lose when there is hidden sin in the camp, in our church, in our lives, and in our families that we do not repent of and turn away from. This story of Achan, about as powerfully as any story in the whole Bible, teaches us how terrible the consequences of our sin can be. And I hope and I pray that every one of us in this room will take this story to heart and let the Lord use it in our lives exactly as he wants to on this day. I want us to look at four lessons about sin among God's people in this story. Each of these lessons is so important for us to receive. Here's the first lesson we see in the story of Achan. Sin starts with dissatisfaction. We covet what God has not given us. I want you to listen again to the way that Achan describes his sin in his own words to Joshua in verse 21. He says, this is what I've done when I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them and there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver 
under it. I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to take a pen if you have one and your copy of God's word. I want to ask you to underline a few words in this verse. First, I want to ask you to underline the words, I saw. He says, I saw the Babylonian garment. I saw the gold. I saw the silver. Next, underline the word, I coveted. He coveted them. He wanted them. Next, underline those words, took them. And finally, underline the word hidden. And when you look at those words that you have underlined, what you have there is really the progression of Achan's sin. I saw, I coveted, I took, I hid. And it's this way, not just with Achan's sin, it's this way, even when you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the very first sin in this world. The Bible tells us that Eve saw that the fruit of the tree that the Lord said is the one tree you're not allowed to eat from. She saw it and she desired it. It was desirable to her. In other words, she coveted it. And then it says she took it. She ate of it. She gave it to her husband. He ate of it. And then what did they do next? They hid. They hid from each other and they hid from God. You know, another famous sin we read about in the Bible is the sin of David and Bathsheba and and Samuel. David is out on his balcony one night at his palace when he really shouldn't have been there. He should have been someplace else. But he saw a beautiful woman who was bathing. He coveted her. He desired her. He sent a messenger over to her house to take her. And he did take her. And he lay with her. And she became pregnant. And then he tried to cover it up. And he tried so hard to cover it up that he even went so far as to murder her husband so people would not know what he had done. This is the progression in all of these cases. I saw. I coveted. I took. I hid. You know, in one sense, we really cannot help the first part of that sequence unless we're, we're seeking out something that we should not be looking at. In most cases, we cannot help what we see, but we can help what happens next, can't we? And the second part of the sequence is really when it turns to sin, when we don't just see something, but we covet it. And the word Achan uses for covet here is the same word that shows up in the Ten Commandments when God said, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or anything that is your neighbor's. Coveting is when we want something and we desire something that we have no right to possess. It does not belong to us. It belongs to someone else. And, and I agree with what one person said. Clearly, Achan coveted that garment and he coveted that silver and gold because he was not satisfied with what God had given to him in his life up until that point. He was dissatisfied with what God had given him and he wanted more. Friend, are you dissatisfied? Have you been dissatisfied with what God has given you? Because if so, that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. And the thing is, Achan was not poor, was he? He had a family, he had animals, he had a place to live. Like all of the Israelites, he had the living God moving among him, literally doing miracles right around him. He had the promise of the promised land. If he had just waited, he would have been able to sit in his own plot of land in the promised land. And one thing that really struck me the first time I read this story is that, you know, if you read to the next chapter, to chapter eight, when they end up defeating this little city of Ai, do you know God gives them different instructions in that battle? And in that battle, he says, you know what? This time you can keep whatever you want. 
If he had just waited to the very next battle, he could have had all the gold and all the silver that he wanted. The Lord in his goodness would have blessed him and gave it to him, and he still would have had the favor of God upon his life, but he did not wait. He could not wait. He coveted it, and so he took it. And again, it started with being dissatisfied with what God had already given him. And church, I hope you hear this. Just being dissatisfied with what God has given us is already sin in and of itself. Because we're commanded in the Bible to be content with whatever we have, aren't we? We're commanded in the Bible to thank God, to have grateful, thankful hearts for every good gift that he has given us. And so just that dissatisfaction, that grumbling dissatisfaction in our spirit and in our soul for what God has given us is in itself sinful and it opens up the door to so much other sinfulness. I agree with what Pastor James Montgomery Boyce has said. Look at these words. He said this, Nothing will so quickly destroy a Christian's life as dissatisfaction with God's arrangements for him or her, which leads to lust for what God has not yet given or has given to someone else. We said that the progression of Achan's sin was seeing, coveting, taking, and hiding. The second lesson about sin we need to take to heart is really the end of that progression, the hiding part. Because just like Achan, we have to admit, we are sometimes deceitful about our sin. We try to hide our sin from God, and we try to hide it from others. You know, there's a lot of stories in the Bible about sin, but, but this story is especially about hiding our sin. Because that's precisely, literally what Achan does, isn't it? I mean, he takes that silver, that gold, that garment, and he digs a hole in the middle of his tent and he puts all that stuff down in the hole. He shovels dirt back on top of it. He smooths out the dirt on the top and he thinks that nobody is gonna be the wiser, that nobody's gonna know what he's done, that even God himself will not see the things that he has done. How foolish that is. You know, I love playing games with my, my kids, and, and I, I played a game with all four of my sons, which I, I'm sure all of you, every parent has played this game with your kids, right? Hide and seek. And it's probably easier, you know, when you play it outdoors, but, but, but a lot of times I, we play it inside our house. And just to be honest with you, it's getting to a point where there's not a whole lot of hiding spaces for somebody of my height and my girth, all right? There's just not a lot of places to hide. I mean, literally there's like two. I can get behind a giant curtain, like a shower curtain, or I can lay in bed and I can try to pull the covers over me and hope they don't notice the lumps. I mean, that's about what I'm limited to. And you know, at this point, all of my four boys, right, they're all old enough to know that, right? And so they know dad has like two spots. And so they, they find me immediately, right? It's like, ready or not, here I come. Oh, there you are, dad. I see you behind the, behind the curtain. And it's like, why is that, right? Why, why do my kids, why do they find me so quickly? Well, it's because they know where my hiding spots are. And friends, God knows where my hiding spots are too. And God knows where your hiding spots are. God knew right where that hole in the ground was. 
where Achan had put that stuff under his tent. He saw it. It was not hidden from him. It was plain as day. And, and, and also think about this. By the end of the story, the things that Achan had worked so hard to hide from everyone, not only were they dragged out before God, they were dragged out before the entire camp of Israel and laid on the ground for everyone to see. It's a foolish when we think that we can hide our sin from God and from others, and yet I'm afraid we do that. And, and you know, this week I was just thinking about, you know, what are some of the ways that, that we all try to hide our sin? I, I jotted down six or seven of them. They're not all the ways, but certainly these are some of the ways we do it. One, we just do it by trying to keep up appearances. You know, we figure if we just kind of keep on keeping on, right? You know, we keep on going to church, keep on going to Bible study, keep on looking the part. People won't know that we're really running from God and there's this huge glaring sin that is taking place in our life. We just try to act like everything is normal and, and carry on. And, and you know what? Things only get worse when we do that. When we're not transparent about our sin and we don't bring our sin out into the light of the gospel where his grace can change it. Another thing we do is we hide it from ourselves. And we just try to not think about the wrong thing that we're doing. We really actively, I think, sometimes try to deceive ourselves. And so we know we're doing this wrong thing, but we think, you know what, if I can just keep myself busy, you know, and doing like 10 other things, then, then I don't have to think about or like turn my gaze to this other thing that I know I've done wrong and that I am doing wrong. Closely related to that is this next one. We rationalize it and we tell ourselves it isn't really sin. So if we can't successfully block it from our mind, well, well, then we try to convince ourselves that it's not actually sinful what we're doing. Never under, listen, never underestimate the ability of a person, even a professing Christian, from rationalizing their own sin. From convincing themselves that what they are doing is actually right when God and his word says so clearly that it is wrong. Another thing we do to not deal with our sin, we blame other people, we blame our situation for our sin, right? So we say, well, okay, maybe what I'm doing is sinful. All right, I admit it. But, it, you know, it's not my fault, right? It's Satan's fault. Satan made me do it, right? Or we'll say, you know, it's my spouse's fault, right? Like if you just had to deal with them, if you had to live in the same house with them, then you would understand. I mean, you, you better be surprised I'm not even doing worse than this, right? We blame our friends. We blame our situation. My situation is so bad. If you had to deal with all the things that I had to deal with, then you would know why it's okay for me to do this. We're, we're blaming others. We're not taking responsibility for what God has said is sinful and things will only get worse from there. Another tactic we use, we compare our sin to others and we try to minimize it. So we say, okay, well, yes, it is sinful, but at least it's not as bad as what so-and-so did. And by the way, did you hear what so-and-so did? But it doesn't really matter what so-and-so does. It matters what we are doing and whether what we are doing is right or wrong before the Lord. And the last one I'll mention here, this is another thing we do to just, to just hide. We, we literally try to hide from God. And then what we do is we push everyone away who will remind us about what God says. So, you know, maybe we stop reading our Bible because every time we read our Bible, we keep getting convicted about what we're doing. Maybe we do stop eventually going to church because we don't want to hear his word. 
We don't pray as much because we feel convicted when we pray. And, and, and then what, what we do is we, we end up, uh, you know, if we're blessed enough to have godly friends in our lives who love us enough to call us out and tell us that what we're doing is wrong, what we'll do when we don't want to hear that is we just start to distance ourselves from anybody who will say those things to us because we don't want to receive that word. And then we just surround ourselves with people who will tell us what our ears want to hear, which is it's okay what you want to do but it's all just different mechanisms and means that we use to try to hide our sin, to bury our sin from everyone's view, even from the view of God if possible. But how foolish that is because it says in the word of God, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, there's nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you've spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. What you've spoken in the ear, in the inner rooms, will be proclaimed on the housetops. And so instead of hiding our sin, what we need to do is to confess our sin to God. To turn away from it before it causes any more damage than it already has. Because if this story of Achan teaches us anything, it teaches us this, lesson number three, that we grossly underestimate the damage that our sin will cause. One person's sin can destroy countless lives. The story teaches us as plain as day, that truth. When you look at the story of Achan and you think about the damage that his sin caused, first, let's just start with Achan himself. What did his sin end up meaning for him? Well, for one thing, he died as a result of it. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, but pastor, I mean, that, that can't happen today, right? At least, at least not to a person who's a Christian. I mean, God's not gonna kill me, right? Because of my sin. To be clear, the Bible teaches that if a person is truly saved and redeemed, they are eternally saved and they will never lose or forfeit that salvation. However, with that said, the Bible also teaches us that God disciplines his children. He disciplines those he loves. And I believe that discipline can go all the way up to and even including physical death itself. And the reason I believe that, you know, there's a story in the Bible that's actually very, very similar to the story of Achan, except for it's in the New Testament, and it happens right after the beginning of the New Testament church. And you can read about it in Acts chapter 5. There was a couple who lied to the Lord, lied to the apostles about an offering that they were making. The man's name was Ananias, a woman's name, right? You remember this? And they come, and the man lies, right? And what happens to him? He literally drops dead in the middle of the worship service. And then she comes in and she lies and she drops dead in the middle of the worship service and they drag them both out the middle aisle and they bury them outside. Now that would be a church service nobody would ever forget, wouldn't it? <laughs> and so yes, yes, church, I believe it's only by the grace of God that he who is making my heart keep beating into my chest gives me another hour and another day and another year to be on this earth. And he is the sovereign king. And anytime he chooses, he can say, you know what? That's it. But, but you know, even if that doesn't happen, even if God doesn't choose to do that, you know, I thought about in Achan's case, the, the, the turmoil that he was going through in his spirit because of his sin. You know, you think about it. He never even got to enjoy his sin, did he? Think about that. He never spent the gold, did he? He never spent the silver. He never even wore the coat. 
He just put it in the hole in the ground. And it was in that hole in the ground until the day he died. And I'm sure it tormented him. I'm sure every time he walked by and he looked at that little spot in the hole in the ground, he thought about what he had done. It's hard for him. I bet when he tried to go to sleep at night, right, he's laying down literally right over his sin. How it tormented him. You know who I think are the most miserable people on earth? I don't believe the most miserable people on earth are lost people. I believe the most miserable people on earth are saved people who are running from God. Because they have the Holy Spirit of the living God inside of them and they know better. And when we have the Holy Spirit of God inside of us, when we're running from him and we're just committed to a life of sin, he will not give you a moment's rest. Have you not experienced this? Whenever we start to turn away from the Lord, do we not experience this? His conviction comes. And listen, it's because he loves us. He loves you and me too much to let us go. And so he will convict you and he will keep convicting you until you come and bow the knee before him. Because he has better for you than the path that you are on. So Achan's sin certainly damaged Achan. It ultimately cost him his life. But in this story, his sin affected a whole lot more people than just Achan, didn't it? You think about it, the way his sin affected all of Israel. Because of his sin, God's favor was removed from the entire people. Because of his sin, they lost that battle. Because of his sin, 36 families lost their dad and their husband. Because of his sin, Joshua, the leader of the people, was disillusioned and didn't understand and didn't know what God was doing. Because of his sin, his entire family ended up being destroyed. His sin affected everyone around him. And that's one of the lies that Satan will tell us. Oh, your sin is just a private sin. Your sin doesn't matter to anybody else. It's not going to affect anyone else. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Our sin affects everyone else. It affects everyone around us. Friend, do not underestimate the damage that your sin will bring. Not just to yourself, but to so many other people. And listen, I hope you hear my heart. I'm not talking about past sin that all of us have in our lives that you've already brought to God. You've already received his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. I'm really not going there. I'm not trying to bring a guilt trip on anyone with things you've already brought before the Lord. I hope you hear my heart. What, what, I'm, what I'm pleading with today is any of you in this room right now who are actively right now walking down a path, a path of sin like Achan was. Anyone in this room right now that is coveting something or someone that is not yours. Right now, you're thinking about doing something and going down a road that will not just hurt you, it will destroy your family. And it has the potential to harm the faith of others who know your testimony and know that you claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ. It has the power to affect generations that are not even yet born. Don't underestimate the destructive power of one selfish, sinful choice. We can't even read past the third chapter of the Bible without understanding that. And we certainly can't read Joshua chapter 7 in the story of Achan without seeing this. One man's sin, one woman's sin can destroy countless lives. There's one more principle about sin we need to see very quickly and we'll be through. Number four, the penalty for sin has always been death. Someone must die for every sin. 
I know that the story of Achan is difficult to read. And you know, it's especially difficult for people in our culture to read who, if they even have a conception of God, it's certainly not a God like this God. Their conception of God is a God that is only love as they define love. Therefore, a God who would never judge anyone, would never condemn anyone. And yet that's not the God that we meet in the Bible, is it? And that's not the God who is actually there. The God who is actually there, yes, he is a God of love beyond our wildest imaginations, but he's also a God of holiness. He's a God of righteousness. He's a God of justice. He's a God of love, but he's also a God of light. And this principle that the penalty of sin is death, God taught us that from the very beginning of the Bible, didn't he? When he put Adam and Eve in that garden and he said, you're not allowed to eat of this one particular tree, he said, and in the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely, what? Die. And they did. They died spiritually that day. They began to die physically that day. And so it has been for every son and every daughter of Adam's race ever since. We sin and we die because of that sin, not just physically, but spiritually and apart from the Lord's grace, eternally. That's why, church, we need to read stories like this story about Achan because it reminds us in a culture that disregards sin and minimizes sin, it reminds us how deathly serious God is about our sin. The last verse in this story reads like this, verse 26. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of of Achor to this day. So they made this huge pile of rocks, right? A monument. It's the second stone monument that we've read about so far in the book of Joshua. Remember, the first one was back in Joshua 4. It was the memorial stones that they took from the Jordan River. And they set up those 12 stones. That was a monument to God's salvation and his grace. Well, this is a monument to God's judgment and God's wrath about sin. And I know we'd rather look at this one than that one, but we need to look at both of them because they both tell us something that's true about our God. It also says in verse 26, they called the place where they stoned Achan and his family, where they burned them with fire, where they covered them with stones. They called that valley the Valley of Achor. It was a play on Achan's name. Achan's name sounds like Achor, which was their word for trouble. And just like Joshua had said to him, you've troubled Israel and the Lord will trouble you. You know, that's not the last time though in the Bible that we read about this Valley of Achor. In the book of Hosea, centuries later, the prophet was talking about how Israel was like an unfaithful wife to her husband. How she was running off from God and worshiping these false gods, and yet God said, but I still love you, and I'm still going to woo you back. And this is what God says about his people in Hosea 2. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her, speaking of his people, I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there. Listen, and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. It's so beautiful to me when I read that, that that God can take a place, even a a place like the Valley of Achor, where a man and his family died because of their sin, and he can turn it into a door of hope. And you know how he does that? 
He's able to do that because there was another man who lived centuries after Achan who was also dragged outside of the camp and put to death by all the people. The difference is this other man was perfectly innocent. This other man did not deserve to die, but he allowed himself to be nailed to a tree for our sin. And they took his body down from the tree and they put it inside of a tomb and they rolled a big stone over the mouth of that tomb. And it marked the place where his body lay for the next three days until the third day when he rose again. You see, we have all sinned like Achan did. We all deserve to die for our sin like Achan did. But church, because Jesus Christ died in our place, because he took the punishment that our sins deserved, because the fierce wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross, it does not have to be poured out on us. That is the good news of the gospel. I hope you receive these words. Because Jesus was troubled for us at the cross. He and he alone can turn our valley of trouble into a door of hope. But church, hear me, for that to happen, in order for that to happen, we have to turn from our sin and we have to turn to God. I want to close with this final verse from Proverbs. It simply says this, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. If you're here today and you have not received that forgiveness that comes from the Lord, I want to invite you, don't hide your sin anymore. Don't pretend that it's no big deal, that it doesn't matter. But bring it before the Lord and lay it before the Lord and understand that his grace is greater than your sin. That he can turn your valley of trouble into a door of hope. That he wants to receive you and forgive you. And so church, I'm going to ask you to stand if you would at this time. And if that's you, I want to ask you to come and speak with one of our pastors and say, I need to receive that forgiveness. I don't want to hide my sin anymore. But just for a moment before we sing, I also want to speak to those of you in this room who would say, I'm already a Christian. At one point in my life, I already have received that forgiveness from the Lord. And yet maybe right now, and God's been been speaking to you throughout this message today, because right now you know that there's sin somewhere in your life, in a hole in the ground, in the middle of your tent, in the middle of your home, in the middle of your life. And I don't have to say what it is because his Holy Spirit is saying what it is and you know it's there and you've been hiding it, and your spiritual life has been getting worse and worse and worse. The favor and blessing of God is not upon your life because you're not walking in holiness with him. There's something in the way of your relationship with God. Don't hide it anymore. You can come and kneel here at the altar. You can pray with the pastor. You can kneel right where you are. You can cry out to God in this place. Say, God, forgive me. I I turn from my sin. I turn to you. I don't want to hide anymore. I want your mercy. I need your hope to meet me where I am. You come as we sing.